so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, thank you for joining me as we're going to hit Luke chapter 10. For those who have been uh, listening in throughout this entire series, welcome back. Um, pray this has been edifying and a blessing to you as we've been going through Luke. Um, and those who this is your first time, then welcome. Uh, we're going to be hitting Luke chapter 10. Now, as it's kind of been a fitting theme without many, with many of these, uh, we have got 42 verses to cover. So as I would love to kind of unpack these things and go into detail on every one of these accounts that we're going to be having. I'm going to be giving you, as I talked about towards the end of our last podcast, little breadcrumbs for you to go and study and search after. So, hope all is well with you guys as you are with the Lord. And we're going to get into verse 1, Luke chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn there with me if you are able. And otherwise, just listen well. In verse 1, he says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, just real quick, before I would even get into um, some of what the rest of this is going to be talking about, and there's some discrepancy on this one between, was it 72 or 70? If you're reading the King James Version, it's going to say 70. If you're reading the ESV or some other account, it's going to say 72. I even have a footnote in mind that says possibly 70. I'm more inclined to think that it was 70 because 70 is actually kind of a, a pivotal number. If you go back into the Old Testament and you do a word search for 70, you're going to find that it actually comes out a lot. And there was a very similar account in which there was men that was actually um, composed with a task and there were 70 men um, who were um, given this task to be able to do it. So I, I see a lot of um, foreshadows and parallels with the Old Testament, so I'd be more inclined to say 70. Regardless, it's, it's not a, um, a, a super consequential number in all of this. What we do know is that there was 70 or 72 that were sent out two by two, and God, or Jesus himself, is the one that appointed these uh, to be sent on ahead of him into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So just as we talked about in a previous one, he sent out the 12 before him. Now he's sending out these 70 or 72, two by two. Uh, if you want a little bit more in depth on that, I talked about that at length in the previous one. But we're going to go on. He says, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says, look, the harvest is ripe. It's ready for the, t- for the plucking. There's people everywhere who they need to know the loving knowledge of Jesus Christ and the message of the kingdom of God is at hand. And I don't believe, uh, I mean, I, I believe uh, that it is no more or less ripe today than it was back then. 
And so we have the same charge for us today, to pray to the Lord. Notice, it's not trying to, to um, you know, raise up all these different programs and events and things. I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad. But what I'm saying is, is are we doing those things through prayer? Is, is prayer the fuel that's actually engaging us to start these things? Um, he's very clear in what he says. Pray earnestly to the Lord to send out labors. First Corinthians chapter 3 tells us very plainly that you know we can water, we can sow, but God's the only one who gives growth. And so we can do all of our programs, we can do all of our, our you know, stuff that we do, but if it's not truly being done with prayer as the fuel and the motivator behind it, and if it doesn't have God's blessing behind it, then God will give no growth. So he goes on, he says, Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Now, let me break this down just real quick. One, I talked about it in a previous segment. It's the same charge he gave to the disciples of learning dependence. They needed to learn how to depend on Christ and not themselves. And so as he tells them, he says, look, don't take any money bag. Go your way. Take no knapsack, no sandals. Take the bare minimum of what you need, and I will provide for you along the way. And he goes, I think this is really interesting because to me it shows us a little bit of what the gospel is back then that they were proclaiming compared to the gospel today. Why would somebody's peace not be on them? I mean, if you really break it down and think about it, analyze the whole New Testament, the gospel message that the apostles preached that got them killed. The gospel message that Jesus preached that got him killed. The gospel message that the early church has throughout the early centuries of the early church that they preached and got them killed. You can go read Fox's Book of the Martyrs and find all these men and women who preached the gospel message of truth. This urging message of people to repent from their sin and turn unto the Lord. And it got them killed. And today we have a gospel of fluff that is not necessarily an an incorrect gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. It's one that we proclaim about God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy. But we don't like to talk about his wrath. We don't like to talk about his judgment. We don't like like to talk about that the word says that he's a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He's vengeful even. He's zealous for the spirit that he makes to dwell in us. I mean, these are all characteristics of who God is, but we don't like to talk about that because that stuff gets us hated and persecuted. Well, we're given an incomplete message. We need to be talking about the love of God, but also the hatred of sin. And even as Psalm 5.5 says, you might not agree with this, but it's what is written that he even hates the sinner. We like to talk about his forgiveness, but we don't really like to talk about his judgment. We like to talk about his his um, steadfast love and his mercy, but we don't like to talk about his wrath. The message that they had was one that was a complete message. It was one that talked about everything. It wasn't just the good, feel-good stuff uh, of the gospel. And as a result, there was people who rejected them. And he's going to show you what needs to be done in terms of that. But it goes on, he says this, um, uh, let me see. Okay, so in verse 5, whatever house you enter, first say, and I think that's important because he says, I want your first inclination 
to be peace. I want your first inclination to be love. I want your first inclination to be something in which you don't want the person to reject you. You actually are hoping that they receive you. You first are to approach things in this way. And if it's rejected, if they reject that message, the gospel message that the kingdom of God is at hand, now revealed through Jesus Christ, then this is what you're going to do. He says this, And remain in the same house, meaning if they receive you, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. I want you to notice that it's eating and drinking. It's not a, a, a luxurious life. It's not having a, a um, you know, all the, not just the needs, but also the wants of life provided. So you're getting that nice fancy car. You're getting the nice fancy salary. You're getting, you know, um, health care provided for. You're getting stipends. You're getting a parsonage. And you're getting a salary on top of that. So you can actually live it up as a pastor. You know, there's been many men over the years who have actually gotten into pastoral work simply because it pays good. I, I know some personally, let alone stories that I've read of people like, um, uh, what was the dude's name? Um, I'm wanting to say it was John Bunyan, and I could be wrong, maybe it was George Mueller. Um, who ended up being <laughs> some really great Christian guys and examples for us. Um, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3, keep your eyes fixed on the examples that you have. Um, but there's men who have gotten into ministry simply because it pays good. You know, you preach a couple sermons on Sunday, you do a couple nice little hospital visits, and you're available for people, and you can actually make a pretty good living off of it. Notice that that's not anywhere in Scripture. It's always the necessities of life, the means to sustain life and to equip you for the work of ministry. And that is not luxury by any stretch of the means. And so on this one, it says that they provide for the laborer deserves his wages, something in which I, I could go at length on and say that Paul didn't actually take use of his right. He preached it free of charge. And I think we would do well in today's society to maybe get back to doing something similar to that. Because there's a lot of people who reject Christianity simply because they look at the pastors and they say, whoa, you're in it for the money. You're in it for yourself. Paul says, I don't want to put any stumbling block in the way of anybody receiving the gospel message. Now, before I get off into that little tangent, we're going to keep going. He says, do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, here's what he says to do. He says, you're coming into this town with a kingdom message. You're coming into this town with the gospel message of Jesus Christ and the lordship of Jesus Christ and his dominion over the earth, that he is Lord of all and King of all, and he is the savior of those who would surrender their life to him. He says, if they reject you, if they don't receive that, he says this, go into that town's streets and say this, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. He says, don't give dogs what is holy and don't feed those pearls to swine. If they reject that message and it becomes clear that they have turned their hearts from it, then you let them go. This is what 2 John 1, 9 through 11 talks about when he says, everyone who goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ does not have God, meaning that God's not with them. It, it could mean that they're not saved or it could be something of what it was talked about in the Old Testament that God's people, when they went out into battle, 
if there was something missing um, in their relationship with God in that moment, if there was one person who even had sin in their life, if there was sin in the camp for one person, then God was not with them and they would lose. I'll give you the story of Joshua chapter 7 with a man named Achan, where it says that he took some of the idols from the conquered territories that God had forbid them from doing, and he put them in his tent. And so uh, because of that one man putting those idols in his tent, the rest of Israel went out to fight. They were innocent, including Joshua. Joshua had been given the promise that, hey, as you abide with me, as you do what you're supposed to be doing, no one will stand before you. So they go out there, and I believe it was 30 Israelites died, and Joshua comes back perplexed. Like, what in the world? God, you said that you would be with us if we went to battle. And God answered him and said, you have sin in the camp. There's a man in your midst who has idols. So they drew lots, and they came on Achan, and God said, kill him. Purge Israel from the evil that's there, and then I will be with you. Did God all of a sudden, I mean, was Joshua not really an, uh, a Jewish Israelite that was saved? No, of course not. He was an anointed one of God that led the people into the promised land. But there was sin in the camp and God did not go with them. So whether this person saved or not, that has not necessarily any consequence to it. It's a person who goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ saying, my way is better. I don't have to listen to the word of God. I don't have to do what he's saying. I'm going to do what I am wanting to do in this moment. He says... Everyone who goes on ahead of the teaching of Christ does not have God. And he says, and don't even greet that person or let them into your home lest you take part in their evil deeds. That's a serious message that I think we don't teach enough today. God commands us to be separated and holy. And you're like, well, then how are we going to give the gospel message? No, no, no. That's not about giving or not giving. It's about a person choosing to go their own way and do their own thing after they've been informed of the truth. He says, that person, don't have anything to do with them. And the same way, Jesus is telling these 70, 72, whatever, men who are going out there, he says, look, if people are rejecting this truth, if people are rejecting your message and they have turned their heart away from you, he says, and you go out to those streets and you proclaim to them that even the dust of this city will not cling to me. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Jesus says, look, you just keep proclaiming the kingdom. You keep sowing that seed like Johnny Appleseed. You just keep sowing that seed and hope that there's good soil that's there. And if it's not, then you walk away. You walk away. And you keep proclaiming the gospel message. And he goes on, he says, Woe to you, Cherizen. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades, which is the Greek term for the Hebrew Sheol. Same place, same thing. It's just the, the Greek version or the Greek term for it. It says, the one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus makes it very clear. He says, if you're going to reject him here on earth, you will be rejected in heaven. If you deny me on earth you'll, or before men, then I'll deny you before my father. Jesus makes it very clear. And he says, look, guys, if you're going out there and you're proclaiming, know that they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. It's, it's not about you. 
I can tell you, there's been times where I've struggled with that concept, where it's like, man, they're, they're rejecting me. They didn't like how I spoke. They didn't like how I taught. They didn't like this. And, and that's, that's not the case. That's usually the excuse for people to reject Jesus. Because we like to keep things horizontal. Because that, that makes it um, easier for us to ignore. And, and here's what I mean by that. We like to, um, to criticize, to critique, to judge, to do whatever people on a horizontal level. Because that, that um, is kind of a smoke and mirrors from us having to realize that God is the one that we're actually rejecting. The vertical relationship. That's what we're rejecting. We're rejecting his truth. It's easier for us to say, I don't like how that person said that, or I don't like what this person did, or I don't like what that person said, all in the means of saying, I'm rejecting truth. You just say it for what it is. You want to remain in the darkness a little bit longer, and you don't want light shining on you. So you're going to criticize the messenger. But as Vodibachum once said, hey, you know what? I didn't write the mail, I just deliver it. If you're going to reject the mail, it's you're rejecting the one who wrote it, not the mailman. And so in all this way, you can look at even into Luke chapter 12, 48, where he talks about the judgment. He says there's going to be these people who knew the right thing to do, and they didn't do it. They get a severe beating. But the people who didn't know and did what deserved the severe beating, you look at in verse 48. He says they're going to get a light beating. And he says it'll be more bearable for Sodom than it was for you because I came and testified with miracles and truth and the voice of God. In your midst. And you rejected me. He goes on. He says the 72 returned with joy. Saying Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now I wanted to to clarify this real quick. There's a teaching out there that says that only the apostles had the works of casting out demons and miracles. And then once the apostles died. Then those things um, ceased. They're called cessationists. It's It's a viewpoint of cessationalism. That the gifts, the ability to cast out demons, the mighty works, those all ceased when the apostles died. Well, let me fill you in a little bit. These weren't all apostles. These were 70 or 72 men that had been given the authority of heaven to go and cast out demons and to do mighty works. So that theory that that died with the apostles, well, that's kind of blown out of the water with this one. He goes on, he says... And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Man, isn't that a cool promise? He says, no weapon formed against you shall stand. The weapons will be formed. Satan will come after you. But as you abide in Christ, as you abide in that authority that Christ has and that he's bestowed upon his church... He says, nothing will be able to hurt you unless you let it. Are there going to be things that come against you? Absolutely. But the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are mighty and powerful and spiritual and Satan cannot touch them. He goes on, he says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. That the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And, and you know, let me just say this. I, I know that there's a lot of people who rejoice in spiritual giftings. They rejoice in the manifestations of giftings. True, I should say, manifestations of the giftings. People rejoice in the things that God gives to them. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it is a bad thing when you misprioritize it. And you forget that the greatest blessing and thing to rejoice in is that our names are written in heaven through Christ. You know, I once had this guy that um, 
I got done giving a sermon um, on the heels of an Eric Luddy message where he talked about an Irish elk. And, and I would encourage you to go look up what that is. Eric Luddy, L-U-D-Y, and go look up Irish elk. And he's got a great sermon that goes along with that. And there's actually sermons that, that um, incorporate that. And I... I you know, talked about this, and I went into the sequoias, and, and at the end of all this, long story short, this guy comes up and he goes, Dude, "You're an Irish elk," and you know, I, I didn't know what to say in that because it's not something that I believe about myself. Um, but he said, "You're an Irish elk," and he's like, "Man, I mean, I mean it, like, dude, like." The way you, you teach and the way you speak, it's like God has anointed you and you're an Irish elk. And all I could do is just have some tears well up in my eyes and I didn't know what to say to it. Because like I said, I, I, I don't believe that about myself, um, that I'm an Irish elk. And anyways, you know, long story short, several months go by, this dude's learning and he comes to me and he's got a Pentecostal background. And he comes to me and he says, I've never, I've never heard anyone teach the way you do. And he says, you teach with authority and the, the things that you un- unravel in scripture, it blows my mind. And he says, and I've never seen a body love each other like this fellowship loves each other. He said, you guys are, are at, at the upper echelon of what I've seen and experienced in my Christian life of people who love one another and the wisdom of God that's coming um, into this fellowship through you that you're teaching with. And he said, but... I was like, uh-oh, here's a but. And he goes, but I long for tongues. I long to see manifestation of tongues in the body, and I'm just not seeing that here. And so I'm going to go find that somewhere else. And I was like, okay. <laughs> the two main attributes that should define the church of Jesus Christ is truth and love. Tongues isn't one of them. And you're going to say that tongues are a greater priority than the first two. That doesn't make sense to me. It does not make sense. And I think that sometimes we do that as well. We, we misprioritize the giftings. We misprioritize the, the blessings of God. We, we misprioritize all the various things that God gives to us or does for us or whatever. And we forget the greatest blessing, the thing that we are so undeserving of, was for God to send His Son to give us an access point to be with Him for all of eternity in Jesus Christ. That our names are written in that book of life in Christ. That is the main thing that we should rejoice at. I'm not saying tongues are bad. I'm not saying that the giftings are bad. I'm not saying that the blessings God gives to us are bad. But when we misprioritize those things, we lose sight of the one true thing that we should always have rejoicing in because what happens when the tongues cease? What happens when um, all those various blessings, what if they get taken away? Like it did with Job. What are we left with if that was our main thing that we always rejoiced in? And so with, you know, without having to go into a whole lot of that, I just wanted to kind of give you a breadcrumb to think about, to chew on, if you will. He goes on in 21, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will, or it was well-pleasing to you. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And I love that passage. Just think about that. 
I've got it circled in my Bible, or maybe you can circle it in yours, that all things have been handed over to me by my Father. It's the same thing that he says in the very end of Matthew 25, before he commissions the apostles to go and to make disciples. He says, all power and authority has been given to me. And then in Ephesians 1 and 2, he talks about how we have been placed in Christ, in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, and all authority and power has been given to Christ, and he now gives it to us as the church. He says everything has been placed under his feet, and we are his hands and feet. That means that everything is placed under us, so that we walk with power and authority. And I look out in the church today and I see just a bunch of defeated people who they only have power and authority over simple basic things that they think are possible in their own strength. But those impossible things like taking every thought captive or, or having um, dominion over addictions or whatever it might be, we, we make excuses. And he says all power, dunamis is the Greek word, all power has been given to me. And he's given it to us in his church. No weapon formed against you shall stand. It will be formed. Satan will come after you. But you now have grace to be able to overcome him. Not grace that covers sin. That's not what grace is in its fullest sense. It is what allows us to overcome sin. It's not just God overlooking that sin and saying, Oh, well, you're in that mud pit. You know, sorry about that. You have grace. That's not what grace is. That's mercy. Grace is the ability to clean us up out of that mud pit, pick us up and say, go, my child, be clean. Do the work that I've entailed you to do. That's grace. And when you begin to see grace in its truest light as not just some definition of a general sense of unmerited favor, you begin to see it as the enabling power of heaven to now achieve that which was formerly impossible. You begin to see it like that. And it changes everything as to how you view the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and grace in your life. He says that he hid these things from the wise and the understanding, meaning the wise of this world, or it could also entail the wise of the law of Moses, the Pharisees. And that goes into 1 Corinthians 1 and chapter 2. Well, you're going to find that, that principle that's there. The wisdom of this world is folly to God, as 1 Corinthians 3 talks about. It doesn't mean anything, which is crazy to me because that's what we, we try to raise up our kids in. We send them off to public school to be, go be trained in the ways of this world. And then we wonder why, as, um, not Barnes and Noble, uh, what's the, um, uh, the Barna Group um, did a survey where it said that those who are um, raised in a Christian home, this was about five to six years ago, of students who are raised in a Christian home that attended all 12 years of public high school or public school, that 85% of them leave the faith after their first year after graduation. 85%. Vody Balcom has a quote where he says, why are we so surprised that when we send our children off to Caesar, they, came back, they come back Romans? Luke 6.40 says that no disciple is above his teacher, but every disciple when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. What is teaching our children are the ways of this world. The very thing that God says, I consider that foolishness. I'm not saying learning um, algebra and learning English and grammar and all those things are um, inconsequential. Like it, it has no bearing on anything. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is what is the priority of what we're training our kids in? Are we truly training them in the word of God so that they have that sword? 
Or are we sending them off swordless into the world so that the lion can eat them and devour them? Something to think about. But he goes on, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And praise God that John twelve thirty two says that after he was resurrected and glorified, it says that when he is raised up, he will draw all men to himself. It's no longer as what he's talking about here in his time, in his ministerial time on Israel, in these three years that he ministered to Israel. It's no longer just whoever God chooses to reveal the Son to. Once Jesus resurrected, He's now going to be revealed to all. He's going to draw all men to Himself. And as, he, as Paul tells Timothy, that God's desires for all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 23, Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear. In short, he's simply talking about his voice and his face, as 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. You look in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, it talks about this glory from God that came upon Moses that the people couldn't even look at Moses' face. And then it goes on and it says this, that the glory of God is now revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. He says that the prophets of old, they desired to hear the voice of Christ. They desired to see the face of Christ, but they couldn't. And they didn't. But these apostles did. They heard his voice and they saw his face. And it's a precious thing. He goes on 25. And uh, behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. And um, I've got about 15 minutes probably until somebody's going to probably come in here. Because I'm about to do our men's study. And I'm trying to cram in a podcast just real quick before they get here. So if I seem like I'm a little bit rushed, this is a little bit why. Because I am looking at the clock. And I'm like, man, I've got about 10 or 15 minutes before somebody's going to come in. He says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking, What good deed must I do to get into eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, meaning Jesus, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now something to remember about this, as I've talked about several times in this, is that this is all prior to the new covenant being established. Because the reality is, is there's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life through this new covenant in Christ. There's nothing we can do. The only thing that we can do is to surrender our life to the person of Jesus Christ and the finished work on that cross and abide in Him until the end. That is the only thing that we have to do to get eternal life. And Jesus and the epistles make that abundantly clear. But here, still under the old covenant, because Hebrews 9 says the new covenant is not established until the death of the individual who instituted it happens. So until Christ died on the cross, the new covenant has not been established. But regardless of that, Jesus says, do this and you'll live. In John eight fifty one, this is what Jesus says here. Let me get to it real quick. I've got to find it because I don't want to misquote it. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Do this and you'll live. If you keep my word, you'll never see death. What is the word of Christ? It's believe in me. That's why Romans 10 says, the one who believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. The essence and the bedrock of our salvation is our faith in Christ. That is 
the essence of it all. And works supplemented to that faith will keep that faith strong. This is why I think it's in 2 Peter 1.5, he says that we are guarded by God's power through faith for salvation ready to be revealed. Faith is what guards us by God's power. Now that is a topic that I would like to go more in depth in, but I can't just understand this. We do have responsibility within our salvation. But the responsibility is not keep 613 commands or even keep two commands perfectly and we'll get saved. We'll get eternal life. It's keep your position in Jesus Christ, the book of life, the lamb of life. That's the essence of our salvation. Going on, he says, but he desired to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with a very common story that I think all of us have probably heard before. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side, but a Samaritan, the hated ones, the half-bloods to a Jew, the ones they wouldn't even go through Samaria, they would walk all the way around the town of Samaria because they did not want to have anything cling to them of the Samaritans because they were Jews that were mixed with Gentiles and they became half-bloods. They were essentially, they were traitors to the Jews. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to the inn to take care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, whatever more you spend, I will repay when, you come, when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus asks, do you think proved to be a neighbor? To the man who fell among the robbers. And he said the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him. You go and do likewise. He says look it's not about saying love your neighbor. Oh yeah I love my neighbor. It's about doing it. Proving your love for your neighbor. And who is his neighbor? Well primarily it's going to be a fellow Jew. The Samaritans technically still were of the Jewish lineage. The neighbor to a Jew was a Jew. It was somebody who you lived life with. It was somebody you had close, in, close quarters with. It was somebody that was close to you. To a Jew, it was, an, it was a fellow Jew. For us, in the church, it's a fellow Christian. But it's not relegated to only Christians. It's the world. It's anybody out there that you rub shoulders with, that you come in contact with. You're to love them as yourself. This is why Galatians 6, 9 through 10, it talks about it. It says, so then as we have opportunity, do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. Our neighbor, first and foremost, is a fellow brother or sister in the Lord. That is the first and foremost neighbor that we have. But it's not relegated to only that. It's inclusive of all, even your enemies, even somebody that would abuse you, hurt you, revile you. You give them the exact same thing that Jesus gave us an example of on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Romans 12 says, here are the marks of true Christianity. One of them is, is that if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
do not be overcome with evil. Or do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. I talked about that a little bit in the previous podcasts and the concept of self-defense and how it's, it's um, incompatible with the cross and the gospel message that we um, give. So he said, you go and you do likewise, right? Now in, James, in John 13, 17, Jesus is doing a famous thing where he's washing the disciples' feet. And he goes to Peter and he says, Peter, I'm going to wash your feet. And he says, no, 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 you can't, you know, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And he says, no, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And that's a pivotal message in and of itself. Jesus has to be the one that washes us with the spirit. It doesn't matter if your feet were washed. It doesn't matter if your whole body was washed. In fact, Jesus even says, it's not about washing your whole body. It's not about water baptism. It's not about a, a pastor who dunks you in some water and now declares you clean. That's not at all what's going to save you and give you an identification and a share with Jesus. The only thing that can give you a share with Jesus is when Jesus himself washes you. And John the Baptist says himself, I baptize with water, but he who comes after me baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And that's what Titus 2 and 3 talk about where it says it's the washing and the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom was poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. He's the one who has to wash us. But moving on in that context, in verse 15, he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You see, the gospel message to us is one of application and it's one of doing. It's one of of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, if you will, is what Philippians 2.12 says. The point is, is that guys, we can't just say, oh, I gave my life to Jesus. He's my savior now. And then you don't have to actually go do anything for him. No, it's quite the opposite. You will not find the blessing until you yourself have become broken enough to serve him and do what he's asked you to do. There are rules to Christianity. It's not just about rules. It's also about relationship. If you try to just make it about relationship with no rules, then you're going to be nothing more than Nicolaitan, which Jesus said he hates their works. If you try to make it just about rules and no relationship, then you're no more than a Pharisee, which Jesus says, I hated their works. Your relationship will grow stronger when you abide in the rules that he's commanded of us. And your desire to abide in those rules, that will increase when your relationship gets stronger. It's a cyclical pattern that we're in. One gets stronger when the other one increases. And that's the idea is to continue to abide in him and you become this vessel who wants to obey. And then you become a useful friend to God. This is what 2 Timothy 3, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to think of what it is, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy chapter 2. You can go look it up. It says if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he becomes a vessel of use to the master. And so the point is, guys, is that we have got to make sure that we are doing what the gospel commands us to do, what the word of God commands us to do. And in that doing, we will find the blessing. You will never find the blessing of God in your stagnation. You will never find the blessing of God in your lukewarm life. It only comes when you choose to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, as Romans 13 at the end of it says, and make no provision for the flesh. That's where true blessing comes. In verse 38, he says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat down at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I love this passage so much because it shows us that even good things in life can be something that become a distraction. Proverbs fourteen twelve it says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Do you know that the good things in life, that they can actually lead us onto a pathway of having a, um, of venturing away from Christ? Our, our family, our job, our, our, our possessions, the money, things that God could give to us that we're supposed to steward for His glory and on His behalf, those aren't necessarily bad things in and of themselves. But if those things become equal to or greater than our desire and our love for Jesus and the mission that we're on for Him and the kingdom of heaven, then they become idols. And the good now becomes the enemy of the best. She chose the best portion. Martha was doing good things. Serving is not a bad thing. We're commanded to serve. But if in our serving we forget the better portion, then it becomes a distraction. And oftentimes for me in ministry, it's become I've focused so much on the what that I do and I forget the why I do it. I I, I focused on teaching and shepherding and pastoring and making sure that I was there for this person and there for this person, that our home was always open for these people. I would stay up until 2 o'clock as long as somebody needed ministering to. I'd stay up until 2 o'clock and then I'd wake up at 5 to start my studies and then I'd go off to work. Um... I did all these things and it was real easy for me to become distracted by all the things that I was doing and I forgot the better portion to rest in Him and why I did these things. So if I could give you any encouragement real quick, it would be to never forget the why. Why you serve Jesus. Why you give your life to Him. Why you serve people and never, ever, ever compromise That time to spend just sitting at his feet listening to his still small voice. Never compromise that time in your life. Even if it's for good things. And so hopefully this chapter was was a blessing to you guys. And my encouragement to you is go out and do what what Christ has commanded us to do. And don't lose sight of the eternal commission that we have for him and with him. For the sake of things that are temporal and earthly. Y'all be blessed.